0: THIS MORNING, I WANT TO DO SOMETHING UNUSUAL IN OUR FINAL CHAPEL SERVICE. IT'S SOMETHING THAT I IMAGINE HAS SELDOM IF EVER BEEN DONE. Uh, IN FACT, WHAT I WANT TO TALK ON THIS MORNING uh, IS SELDOM TALKED ABOUT ANY TIME IN A SEMINARY SETTING, AND UNFORTUNATELY, uh, IT'S NOT TALKED ABOUT VERY OFTEN IN OUR CHURCHES ANYMORE EITHER. AND THAT IS THE DOCTRINE OF HELL. WHY DO WE GO? THE TERRIBLE DOCTRINE of hell. Now I'm very much aware of the fact that uh, there are many reasons why we go. John Piper has reminded us repeatedly that we go uh, because worship does not exist in places where it should, and so that motivates us. Missions exist because worship doesn't. John Stott has said that we go because we wish to make famous the name of Christ and, and, and to spread His imperial majesty. And I would be in 100% agreement with both of those men. And yet at the same time, I think we would be derelict in our understanding of the gospel if we were not also motivated to go and to take the good news because of the doctrine of hell. So if you have your Bible, join me in the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 20. And we will give our attention to verses 11 Through 15 this morning. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 through verse 15. John writes, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Hell was once a Bible doctrine that people believed and feared. It was never far from their minds or absent even from serious conversation. But we have to admit this morning, times have changed. Uh, The American church historian Martin Marty says, hell has disappeared and no one noticed. Alan Bernstein, who is professor of medieval history at the University of Arizona, says hell today is enveloped in silence. And even among evangelicals, those who claim to believe in an inspired Bible, there is a noticeable absence when it comes to talking about and preaching on this doctrine. The very respected theologian Donald Blesch says, the doctrine of hell has passed out of conversation and preaching even in conservative, evangelical churches. Just stop for a moment and ask yourself, when was the last time I heard a sermon on the doctrine of hell? And yet I would add to all of this that hell has not really disappeared so much as it is being ignored, redefined, or in many cases, lampooned. Jeffrey Scheller in U.S. News and World Report some years ago said concerning hell, the netherworld has taken on a new image. It's now more of a deep funk than a pit of fire. And so today it is what one has called earthly infernos that get all the attention. Hell means the Holocaust. Hell means the suffering in Haiti. And if it's hard for the modern mind to understand why a good God would allow such misery on a temporal scale, imagining one who allows eternal suffering seems not only offensive, but absurd. And perhaps no one put that perspective better than the late theologian Clark Pinnock, once an evangelical, once a signer of the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, who said, and I quote, Let me say at the outset that I consider the concept of hell and endless torment in body and mind, an outrageous doctrine, a theological and moral enormity, a bad doctrine of the tradition, which needs to be changed. How can Christians possibly project a deity of such cruelty and vindictiveness? whose ways include inflicting everlasting torture upon his creatures, however sinful they may have been. Surely a God who would do such a thing is more nearly like Satan than God, at least by any moral standards and by the gospel itself. I decided in preparing this message to Google jokes about hell came up with 75,900,000 hits. I then decided to Google quotes about hell. I got 63,200,000 hits, and some of them uh, quite interesting. Fyodor Dostoevsky said, what is hell? I maintain that it is the suffering of being unable to love. The atheist Aldous Huxley said, maybe this world is another planet's hell. Oscar Wilde said, we are each our own devil and we make this world our hell. John Paul Sartre said, hell is other people. I could consider that one. Edgar Allan Poe said, there are moments when even to the sober eye of reason the world of our sad humanity may assume the semblance of hell. Victor Hugo said, an intelligent hell would be better than a stupid paradise. Ludwig van Dickenstein said, Hell isn't other people, hell is yourself. It's often said popular parlance that Jesus spoke more often about hell than any other person in the Bible. And the fact is, that is true. Uh, The Greek word Gehenna, found 12 times in the New Testament and always translated as hell, is found on the lips of the Lord Jesus 11 of those 12 times. The only other time is in James chapter 3 and verse 6, where he speaks of the tongue being set on fire by hell. If you look at the Gospels, you discover that Jesus warned his listeners to be afraid of hell in Matthew 5.22. He claimed that only God had the power to cast humans into hell, Luke chapter 12 and verse five. He testified that both the soul and the body could enter into Gehenna, Matthew 10.28, that the unsaved could go there with two eyes, two hands, and two feet. He said in Matthew 5.22, it is a place marked by fire. And in his contrasting of the sheep and the goats in Matthew chapter 25, he said the unsaved would eventually go into, quote, everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Don Whitney in summarizing Jesus' teaching on hell using Matthew chapter 25 said 10 things about hell. Number one, hell is real. Number two, it is separation from God. Number three, it is for all the accursed ones. Number four, it is eternal. Number five, it is hell. Number six, fire. Number six, it is a prepared place. Number seven, it is eternity with the devil and his angels. Number eight, it is inevitable if you have never come to Christ. Number nine, it is inestimable once you are there and number 10 hell is avoidable if you will repent and believe in Jesus Christ and when you look at what Jesus said in those various texts and in Matthew chapter 25 and then you add to that his story in Luke chapter 16 verses 19 31 the story of the rich man in Lazarus it becomes very clear that our Lord believed that hell is real and when you look at the teachings of our Lord and the teaching of the Bible, you have to be honest and admit there is no place for doctrines like universalism, that is the teaching that all will eventually be saved. There's no place even for annihilationism, the teaching that all who are lost will go into nonexistence and they will simply cease to exist. And so I know that Jesus believed in hell because he taught it. And I also know that hell is real and Jesus believed in it. Because of the cross, perhaps no one has put it more succinctly than Robert Murray McShane when he said, the dying of the Lord Jesus is the most awakening sight in the world. Why did that lovely one that was from the beginning, the brightness of his father's glory and the expressed image of his person, degrade himself so much as to become as small as a corn of wheat, which is hidden under the earth and dies? Why did he lie down in the cold, rocky sepulcher? Would Christ have wept over Jerusalem if there had not been a hell beneath it? Would he have died under the wrath of God if there was no wrath to come? Oh, triflers with the gospel and polite hearers who say often, sir, we would see Jesus, but who never find him. You want to find him? Go to Gethsemane. See his unspeakable agonies. Go to Golgotha. See the vial of wrath poured upon his breaking heart. Go to the sepulcher. See the corn of wheat laid dead in the ground. Why all this suffering in the spotless one if there is no wrath coming on the unsheltered, unbelieving head? Yes, the coming of the Son of God into this world and the bloody cross testifies that there is a hell. Now, before we move to the text... There is a major objection that we have to address that is raised again and again and again by those who refuse to believe in this doctrine. Why would God, why would a good God punish forever a finite offense at a particular moment in time? It seems so unjust. It at least seems all out of proportion, and yet I think we can respond with two observations. Number one, sin against God is far more serious than almost every person imagines. It is far more serious than almost any person imagines. Indeed, it is an act of insurrection against an infinite, worthy, and holy sovereign. Sin is not slapping a mouse in the face. Sin is repeatedly slapping the king of the universe in the face. And secondly, as Russell Moore has well said, and I quote, hell is the final handing over of the rebel to who he wants to be. The sinner in hell does not become morally neutral. We must not imagine the damned displaying gospel repentance and longing for the presence of Christ. They do not in hell love the Lord their God with heart, mind, and soul, and strength. Instead, in hell one is now handed over to the full display of his nature apart from grace. And this nature is seen to be satanic. The condemnation continues forever and ever because the sin does too. And so now we move to our text. And from these verses, let me make this morning three observations concerning what I refer to as the terrible doctrine of hell. Number one. Unbelievers will stand before the sovereign God of the universe. That's verse 11. Unbelievers will stand before the sovereign God of the universe. Following the millennial kingdom of chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, and the final defeat of the devil in verses 7 through 10, John sees another vision. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. John MacArthur says of this initial phrase, this is the most serious, sobering, and tragic passage in all of the Bible. It is a vision of a great white throne. It is the place of final eternal judgment. That it is white symbolizes the holiness and the purity of the one who is seated upon the throne it speaks of his glory and his majesty this is a great god in all of his sovereign power sitting upon this throne now though god the father and god the son share in the heavenly throne it does seem to me that scripture would indicate that it is the lord jesus in particular who will provide preside at this particular event john chapter 5 verses 22 through 27 uh, acts chapter 10 verse 42 Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31, Romans chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1 would all seem to indicate that the Lord Jesus in particular has the assignment of this particular judgment. And so it is Christ who is sitting upon this throne as this scene unfolds before us. And what you in essence see is what could be called the universe's uncreation. And it is described in in striking apocalyptic imagery. It says from the presence of the one on the throne, earth and sky fled away. You have an undoing of creation. Indeed, before the eternal state of chapters 21 and 22 begin, Isaiah chapter 51 and verse 6 provides a helpful commentary. The heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment. And they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever. And my righteousness will never be dismayed. My friend, Matt Chandler provides an insightful observation at this particular moment in what is unfolding before our eyes. And Matt says it like this, if God is most concerned about his namesake, then hell ultimately exists because of the belittlement of God's name. And therefore our response to the biblical reality of hell cannot for our own safety be the further belittlement of God's name. Are you tracking with that? Someone who says hell cannot be real, Or we can't all deserve it, even if it is real, because God is love is saying that the name and the renown and the glory of Christ aren't that big of a deal. No, the Bible says when sinners stand before God at the great white throne, they will realize that the name and the renown and the glory of Christ is a very big deal. Unbelievers will stand before the sovereign God of the Universe number two, unbelievers will be judged for their personal righteousness, not the imputed righteousness of Christ. Verse 12 and verse 13. Unbelievers will be judged for their personal righteousness, not the imputed righteousness of Christ. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done, a phrase also repeated at the end of verse 13. Acts chapter 10 and verse 34 teaches us that God shows no partiality, and indeed there will be no ethnic, social, or economic discrimination at the great white throne. Now, I do think, personally, There will be a spiritual discrimination. And though really good Bible teachers don't agree on this particular point, I do make a distinction between what is known as the great white throne and the judgment seat of Christ. Some very fine teachers see the two speaking of the same thing, and I certainly respect that view. Certainly, we could all agree that at this particular vision in Revelation chapter 20, it is unbelievers and only unbelievers who are in view. You say, why do you say that? Because of the very first phrase in verse 12, and I saw the dead. Contextually, he is speaking of the spiritually dead. Those that Ephesians chapter two, verses one through three describe so clearly those who have died apart from Christ. In fact, they are called the dead four times in these verses. And the word dead and the word death appear a total of seven times. Further, it is the great and the small who are standing before the throne. One status in this life will have no bearing at this particular judgment. But then there's a very clear distinction made between a book, the book of life, and books plural, which are, I believe, the books of works. In other words, he sees these books plural opened, which contain the actions and the motions and the thoughts of all the unsaved. I've heard some people say that at the great white throne, you will have something like a heavenly video recorder there on display to show all that you've done, but that is not enough. The fact of the matter is, it will not just be your acts that will be judged. It will be your thoughts, your emotions, everything about you in your rebellion against God. And a comprehensive judgment is referred to again and again in the Bible. Psalm 44, verse 21, Matthew 12, 37, Luke 8, 17, Romans 2, 16. But just hear one, Ecclesiastes 12, 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The Bible says because their name was not found in the book of life, verse 15, and because in unbelief they rejected the perfect imputed righteousness of Christ, they now stand spiritually naked, fully exposed before an omniscient, all-seeing judge of the universe no one will escape. Verse 13 makes that very clear. The sea, often an image of the evil turmoil of this world system, forfeits its dead. Death, that which claims the body, gives up its dead. Hades, that which claims the soul, gives up its dead, with resurrected bodies fit for hell. People from every corner of the earth will stand before righteous King Jesus. Now, verse 12 and verse 13 provide for us teaching that I think necessitates us addressing a very inspo- important principle, and that very important principle is this. Revelation brings responsibility. The more you know, the greater is your accountability. Verse 12 tells us the spiritually dead are judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Verse 13 reinforces this truth again. They were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. So hear me and hear me well. At the great white throne judgment, everyone will be judged fairly and equally but the people there will not all receive the same penalty and punishment. Indeed, those who are thrown into the lake of fire, all are thrown in who have died in unbelief. But the Bible, I think, is crystal clear in helping us understand there are varying degrees of punishment and suffering. The more you know, the greater your Accountability, And therefore, the more severe is your judgment. Now, I'm often asked when I make this statement, especially when I used to teach theology, where in the world did you get that idea? And the answer is quite simple. I got it from Jesus. Listen to Jesus in Matthew chapter 10, verse 14 and verse 15. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Matthew eleven twenty one 21 through 24. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. It would have remained until this day, but I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. And then his word to religious type people, Mark chapter 12, verse 38 through 40. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the place of honor at feast, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir at this point, but let me just say something to all of you, and you need to make sure your people hear it, and that is this. I'm quite convinced that the hottest places in hell are going to be reserved for Baptist for those who year after year after year set under the faithful teaching of the Word of God and yet in hardness of heart they never repented and they never received Christ Billy Graham has said on more than a few occasions that he believes on any given Sunday more than 50% of all those present under our teaching are probably lost because they have not believed the gospel And so you need to be fair with your people and tell them it is a dangerous thing to come to church. In fact, if you are so determined in your own life and heart that you are not going to trust in Christ and you're not going to believe in Him, it'd be better if you never read a Bible again or never come to another worship service because the more you know, the greater is your condemnation. Now let me put it back into context. Yes, there will be degrees of torment in hell, but everyone in hell will suffer terribly there's no good thing present in hell you say why would you say that because god is not there in his grace and his love and his mercy randy alcorn is exactly correct the unbelievers wish to be away from god turns out to be his worst nightmare and c.s lewis would add to enter heaven is to become more human than you ever succeeded in being on earth to enter hell is to be banished from humanity which leads us then to our third and final observation unbelievers will spend eternity separated from god in the lake of fire verse 14 and verse 15. you know human language is really incapable of describing on the one hand the glories of heaven and certainly it's also incapable of describing the horrors of hell You take all the images in the Bible that we have of hell and the lake of fire and you multiply it 10 billion times and you will still not give an adequate description of those who experience the second death. Jonathan Edwards in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, said it like this, the pit is prepared. The fire is made ready. The furnace is now hot, ready to receive them. The flames do now rage and glow. The glittering sword is wet and held over them, and the pit has opened her mouth under them, O sinner. Consider the fearful danger that you are in. He tells us there in verse 14 that death and Hades, body and soul, joined together, are cast into hell, the lake of fire this is the second death spiritual death eternal death permanent separation from god forever think about it alone trapped imprisoned no way out and no second chance hell is never seeing god Yes, I understand in one sense He is there. Psalm 139 makes that clear. However, the lost will have no sense at all of His gracious presence, only His terrible wrath. And finding their name absent from the book of life, they are each and every one thrown into the lake of fire. Again, the language of Scripture leaves no room for any form of universal salvation No idea of purgatory, no second chance, no annihilationism of the wicked. It is an eternal infliction and punishment that is physical, it is mental, and most awful, it is spiritual. Indeed, chapter 14 and verse 11 of Revelation says, they will be tormented without rest day and night forever. So let me close. Dorothy Sayer was a very close friend of C.S. Lewis. She died the year I was born in 1957. And when it came to the doctrine of hell, this precious lady was filled with insight and wisdom. I quote her, there seems to be a kind of conspiracy, especially among middle-aged writers, a vaguely liberal tendency to forget or to conceal where the doctrine of hell comes from. One finds frequent references to the cruel and abominable doctrine of hell or the childish and grotesque medieval imagery of physical fire and worms. But the case is quite otherwise. Let us face the facts. The doctrine of hell is not medieval, it belongs to Christ. It is not a device of medieval priestcraft for frightening people into giving money to the church. It is Christ's deliberate judgment on sin. The imagery of the undying worm and the unquenchable fire derives not from medieval superstition, but originally from the prophet Isaiah, and it was Christ who emphatically used it. Now listen, one cannot get rid of it without tearing the New Testament to tatters. And one cannot repudiate hell without altogether repudiating Christ. John Chrysostom wisely said, let us think often of hell, lest we ourselves fall into it. And Charles Spurgeon said, think lightly of hell, and you will soon think lightly of the cross. He who does not believe that God will cast unbelievers into hell will also not be sure THAT HE WILL TAKE BELIEVERS INTO HEAVEN. LET'S PRAY. FATHER, I WAS, I BELIEVE, MOVED BY YOUR SPIRIT TO BRING THIS MESSAGE TODAY, NOT BECAUSE IT'S POPULAR, IT'S NOT. NOT BECAUSE IT'S EASY, IT'S NOT. AND IT IS NOT A MESSAGE IN WHICH THERE IS JOY BECAUSE THERE IS NONE. LORD, I DO BELIEVE THAT HELL IS REAL. I believe it will be an eternal place of conscious torment and separation from the one true and living God. And Lord, I would desire that reality and that destiny for no one. And so, Lord, may we have hearts like the Lord Jesus that wept over lost Jerusalem, that wept over lost souls. And, Lord, may we never become smug or complacent in our status knowing that it is only by your amazing grace and mercy that we are saved. And so, Lord, until we go to be with you, as long as you give us breath, yes, motivate us to take the gospel to the ends of the earth because missions exist because worship doesn't. And yes, Lord, motivate us to take the gospel to the ends of the earth because we want to make famous the name of Jesus and indeed extend his imperial majesty. But Lord, send us to the ends of the earth as well as across the street to share the gospel with our neighbor because we know there is a horrible, eternal destiny for everyone who does not receive Jesus. May we, Lord, weep for the lost like you have wept for the lost. And may we have a passion to see people saved like the one who came to seek and save those who are lost. May the doctrine of hell never be far from our mind or our lips. We ask and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary.